Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am very excited to introduce one of the most fantastic, fun, smart, sharp people I have had the chance to work with, even though it's just been brief. Um, I'd like to introduce Maluba, who is an experienced communication specialist. Um, She was also born with HIV. She has written for Flair Magazine, Huffington Post, and more. And she has multiple hats that she wears, including working with the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, or OHTN, the Canadian Institute of Health Research Clinical Trials Network, also known as CTN, as well as CANFAR. Maluba, I'm not sure of all these acronyms. What is CANFAR? Canadian Foundation for AIDS Research, as well as (laughs) other things. (laughs) So welcome. Thank you for having me. How excited to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I am... I mean, I really can't complain. I just don't sleep well these days. But Uh, that's like something I have to, yeah, do with. It's not something for you to fix for me, but yeah. Yeah, the COVID COVID, uh, dreams or lack of sleep seems to be quite widespread. Yeah, well, because they came from BC, so I was already jet-lagged. And then when you think you're working from home, you just stay up late to watch movies. And now I'm just, my body, every three hours, my body needs a nap. So it's, I haven't gotten like a straight eight hour sleep at night these days. So I have to, um, I have to try to not be near my bed. So I can <laughs> That's hard when you're working from home. Exactly. It's I, right appreci- there. <laughs> I really appreciate you joining us and the listeners today. I wonder, Maluba, you know, you mentioned you're in Vancouver. I know you're doing a keynote and I'd like to hear more about that. I just wonder if for introducing yourself to the listeners. If I was riding in an elevator with you and we were going up, say, three or four floors, and I said, so Maluba, tell me, what do you do? What are you really passionate about? Uh, How would you describe the work that you do and the activism you do? Ooh, this is a... tough because I feel like I talk a lot. (laughs) It's a few flights. Yeah, I'd let the person, yeah, I'd be like, don't get off yet. We still need to finish. Um, But (laughs) I am very passionate. I think like all my life I've kind of been like, I want to have a TV show. I want to tell other people's stories. I want to help telling my story. Um, So that's why I do love communications and journalism and everything around communication and storytelling. And that also derives from my past, my growth, my 
trauma, if you will, because mm-hmm. I think that we all don't realize all the time that we do actually have childhood trauma and really navigating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I'm just, uh, I think I'm a fun time, personally. <laughs> I would, yeah, I would but, agree to that. <laughs> yes, but I'm very passionate about my craft, communicating, collaborating with other communities, and really just uh, like about education and stopping the ignorance of things and living life to the fullest. Amazing. And if then I was going to show up at your house, imagine there's no COVID-19 okay. and I could show up at your house with a time machine Ooh. and say, Maluba, I know you're a big advocate against stigma and you've done so many things I want to get into, including the documentary that you were in and all of your activism work. But if I was to say, Maluba, let's go in this time machine to the time and place where you first started thinking, I want to do something about changing stigma around HIV in the world, where would we go? Okay, so there's a two-part answer to that. When I was about, what age are you in grade eight? So like 13, 14, in my sex ed class, which was within our religion class, because I went to Catholic school, they, uh, my teacher. <laughs> it's an interesting combination. Yes. <laughs> sex ed and religion. And we, and we had health class, but in health class, we cooked French toast. And then in religion oh. class, they talked about sex. So okay, I was like, so we're going to need French toast one day in the future. Yes, exactly. So very interesting, <laughs> but that's the way they did it. And I remember the teacher, they split up girls and boys. So the boys went to a different teacher. The girls stayed in one classroom. So hopefully things are different now. But um, the teacher just said, you know, if a woman was to get HIV, then you can't have kids. And because I had grown up with HIV, my doctor had told me like years prior that, you know, one day I was going to have kids and that was totally capable of me. But so in my mind, I was like Mm. very confused and I wanted to reach up and say, no, that's actually wrong. But just being a child, knowing already the stigma that comes with HIV, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I can't say anything because then people will think think that that's the point where I wanted that right information out there. Mm-hmm. I wanted people to be educated um, because I felt like educators in my life or adults in my life were less educated than I was mm. at 14 you, years old. And you knew more than the people teaching. Yes. You. Yes. Than the people teaching and dueling out this information. And then my part two, so that kind of just got buried because again, you're a child and you're still dissecting all these feelings you have. And then mm-hmm. in 2014, when I disclosed my status publicly to everybody and their mom, I disclosed it the end of, was it the end of 2014, I believe? I think I was 22. And that was just for my giving myself my best chance just to be open about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like three months after that, I I had, al- I had already been volunteering in the aid sector. But after that, it was just people that really didn't realize certain things or were really shocked to see my video or to hear my story and a, a huge thing part of it was when people would learn that I was born with HIV I don't know if it's to make themselves feel better I don't know if it's to make me feel better or to just like not have dead air but they would say oh okay so it wasn't your fault oh, wow like, and that <clears throat> made me realize because I was like I didn't tell people my story for you to separate me from people that 
contracted HIV later in life. Mm. I don't, and they think that that's a compliment calling me some sort of innocent, Mm. but they don't realize you are, first of all, you're insulting my parents really. Cause then you're saying I was innocent, but then you're putting blame on my parents. And then you're Mm -hmm. saying all these other people. So I really realized that, okay, now it's, it's like people always need that reason of why you're HIV positive. It's not. um, And so that's when I really kind of was like, okay, we're, there's layers to the stigma. Mm-hmm. And that is when I was able to fully take off my activism. That's such an amazing story. And I want to know how were you so courageous and knowing since I guess for a long time, probably most of your life, you've known there was stigma around HIV. So how did you find that courage to make the decision to, to be open at, at 22? Which is still young. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I don't know where that courage came from. I just know that I was very ready. Um, I had no, of course there was worry, but I had no qualms about sharing this. I had no, I just wanted to rip the bandage off. To me, it seemed worse to tell one friend, tell another friend, tell a guy I'm dating. Like, I just was like, I can't keep on repeating this. I, I just need to share it. I think in like, there's several layers to it. I watched my parents um, go through stigma and go through the fear of having a secret like that. And at times I watched that secret control them. Mm. And unfortunately, my parents passed away in 2009 and 2012. Thank you. um, When I was 14 and 19. So those are very formidable years. But I recognized that maybe they didn't live their life to the full extent, but I need to give myself my best Mm. chance. And by that time I had taken one semester of journalism school and I was like, you know what, if I'm asking other people about their stories, I'm going to tell mine. And I just felt like, um, and I always say this, I did not, I loved elementary school. Some of it, I hated high school and I loved college. So I I was the same as you. I was like, even after high school, I was like, I can't, I didn't even go straight to college. And my mom was like, you know, an African mom. She's like, oh my God, you're not going to college. You're going to be a a drug dealer, all that. And so it was just, but I, cause I couldn't, I didn't want to deal with the drama again, deal with different personalities, Mm. deal with not finding what I love to do and what love to learn about. And that's why I always try to tell younger kids, like it really this isn't the end all of be all because when I got in college I just found myself I was so comfortable in who I was and who would accept me that when I disclosed I disclosed on during the Christmas holiday break in December Mm -hmm. and when I came back for my next semester in January I was like if my classmates don't talk to me then that is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, this is not where I'm thinking there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with them. And these are people totally. that want to be journalists, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it just, everything fell into place. And that's why I'd never tell anybody it's something you have to force to disclose or tell every single person. It's just when you know, you know. That's so amazing. Um, I'm wondering what has been the best part about sort of, what you said, sharing your story and being like liberated from uh, the fear of keeping a secret. I think the best part is I had to really check my ego in a sense because 
I was so ready for everybody to throw hate um, that I didn't realize the amount of people that are so supportive mm. in communities. Um, like I said, so when I went to college and I returned back after uh, journalism school, I my classmates were all cool with it. And they were like, we're, I mean, hello, we're journalists. We're all going through it. They were all adults as well. And I really ga- gained these lifelong friends. Um, of course, I had some people that would be, um, that like some people from high school, of course, that would delete me off Facebook. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, of course, but it just really... It was something that was very humanizing to it because it taught people that you never know the full story. And I think it, I mean, I, I found something that's within my passion. I, I can't lie. I found a really great group of community that not only accepts me, but laughs with me, mentors me. Um, and so selfishly, I'm just thankful to have met great people like you yourself. And, um, <laughs> and then to have talked to other people about it. Something I'm really, I really, really cherish is talking to young kids that are infected or affected with HIV about where I'm at and they're just not only in awe but will just ask questions that maybe they wouldn't say to their doctors and yeah it's it's something I can't I, I would never take for granted I and I've seen you in action uh so many times as a speaker as a support for other young people you know when we did the uh, the connections peer retreat and I wonder what you would say to people in the general public who say, what is really the big deal about stigma? Doesn't, don't, doesn't everybody stigmatize? Like, does this really matter? How do you impart the importance of recognizing and ending stigma to people? I think there's, um, that's very interesting, that statement that you say, because I think it's, People that say, well, isn't everybody stigmatized um, or kind of make a blanket statement like that have probably are living a life not full of stigma, but are living a life where that's not affected by it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because somebody who is going through it um, wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say <laughs> something to you about that, about your same-sex relationship, because mm-hmm. it, obviously it's not, um, it, it doesn't put two and two together or just fix anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, I think one, when you look at stigma, when we look at especially the stigma of HIV, it's not just saying you, that person has AIDS. There's people that get beaten, stoned Mm -hmm. for having HIV. There is people who they'll tell one person their status and then that person has the right or the guts to tell everybody else in the world Mm -hmm. about that person's status and make them seem in a different way. There's a connotation with HIV that you did something bad. Mm -hmm. It's something that's been around for years. We can't deny that. And then there's, I mean, there's also people getting jailed for having Mm -hmm. HIV. They don't even transmit it and they're getting put in jail. So stigma does have these consequences that it's putting down. It's also educating a younger generation into being, can we swear? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Into being it. assholes. I did censor myself, though. I'm very proud. And it, yeah, and, and you're raising those younger generations into 
being assholes and and so stigma is is so many layers i Mm -hmm. think that it's not just easy to say aren't we all stigmatizing i think we all judge like what what would we judge about I don't know. I don't know what I judge, but I know I probably judge a lot. Like I, I, I judge my, my past self, all of that. I, I judge, there's probably mm-hmm. judgments that we just throw out there. There's judgments if there's someone's eating something we don't like, but stigma is a whole different ball game. And it's not just, Oh, doesn't everybody stigmatize? It has layers to it. And mm-hmm. socio, so, social, social and economic disparities mm-hmm. that are faced by people who are being stigmatized. That's such a, a powerful answer, and it leads because you touched on some of the the issues. Um, in the next question I have, which is around what does stigma look like, and you've given some really powerful examples. And I t- spoke with Alex McClellan the other day, and he was describing stigma looks like violence. So it's it can be physical violence, it can be verbal violence, and it can be criminalization, which is also violence. And you mentioned many of those mm-hmm. um, those things about what stigma looks like. It can look like people asking you, how did you get this with some sort of judgment mm-hmm. or sharing your status, your health status, your health, your personal health information without even your consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's people sharing um, your health information, um, people putting you in a category of non-human. Um, mm-hmm. It's Different, and just to give a few examples, when I was about, I think this was like 10 or 11, I became a member of the Big Sister, Little uh, Big Sister, Big Brother program, Mm -hmm. and I got paired up with a big sister, and she had me over at her house one day, her and her husband were cooking barbecue, and made me eat off of paper plates and paper cups. Oh my goodness. Which would have been fine, but then they ate off of glass. Wow. And so you're just like 10 years old. Of course, I'm there. I'm just going with it. I don't even realize. And it's this whole thing where on the drive home, I'm like, do I even tell my mother that happened? Because then my mother will freak out. And now I don't want to make a scene. And, um, and you know, these are things that like you think about that now. It's like, am I the one making a scene? Long story short, she wasn't my big sister after that incident. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a new big sister Good. like a year later. And yeah, she's like my godmother now. Um, love wow. And you just find certain things. So that was an example as a kid um, that was really heartbreaking. And then as an adult, I grew up in a town in Ontario called Oakville. Um, That's where mostly I grew up. Um, Was going to a pediatrician for my HIV, later transitioned to adult care. And then after my mom passed away, I moved to Mississauga at 19 years old. I'm not sure what happened in the system. I can't say for sure, but I got a call from Peel Public Health. They said, you need to come in. Very discreet on the phone. I didn't even fully understand what Peel Public Health was about, but I went in and the woman was like, oh, you need to write down your list of sexual partners. Wow. So you need to do that. And I was very stunned. And I said, oh, I don't, I I was a virgin. I was like, oh, I don't have any sexual partners. She's like, no, you need to tell me the truth. Like I need to just, you know, um, make them informed. I'm not, it's nothing to involve you. And I was like, I'm not lying to you. Like I don't. And she was confused. And then I was like, what do you, 
what do you think this is? And again, I'm still shy at the time. So I'm like quiet at first. And then I turned to her and said, like, do you know anything about me? And she's like, no, like it doesn't come up like that. So there's that realization that I guess I came up in the system as a new diagnosis. I don't know what happened. (sighs) Um, But then you're having, and then that lady from public health did not know you can be born with HIV. Oh my goodness. So not only did she not believe you when you were telling her very personal information. Yes. And I was like, and she's like, no, you need to tell me. And I'm like, are you like looking back on it funny? I'm like, why is she making me feel bad for being a virgin? Like you don't need to reiterate to me that I haven't gotten any dick. Okay. Like I'm (laughs) like, listen, like I know I'm working on it, girl, but it was like, it was so hor- horrifying because I was like, a list of partners, a list of that. Like, you're acting like I already did something illegal. And that's stigmatizing itself because you're also supposed to be a leader in the healthcare field. And you would hope that if somebody does test positive for HIV in any region, that going to public health would be a comforting place, not a stigmatizing place where now you're considered like to have a felony record. Yeah. And that's so astounding that she she would just not even ask you about your history in an open, curious way, just assume things about your history and, and be so misinformed and be part of public health. And that's also stigma. That's like, it's stigma when we, and discrimination, we don't, the people in, in charge of our health don't have the right information and haven't informed themselves. It's, Absolutely. It's, I also want to, to talk to you about what you brought up earlier, which is this acceptance that maybe surprised you um, when you were in journalism school and also about your sold out cooking uh, event. I was wondering if you want to share with the listeners something about that amazing um, cooking event against stigma and a documentary. Yeah, sure. It's, um, I wish I could say it was just mine, but, um, it, uh, so Casey House, which is the hospital in Toronto that primarily serves people living with HIV. It used to be a hospice, but as we know, HIV has advanced over the years that it's now considered a hospital. Um, they had in 2017, um, took a survey. And about 50% of Canadians said they wouldn't eat food prepared by someone living with HIV. Wow. 70% of Canadians said they wouldn't share their HIV status. So they recruited Matt Basili and Vidal Gastro's crew of chefs to train about 15 people living with HIV to become chefs. And we had a pop-up restaurant for three days. And can I just say it was sold out? I wanted to come and it was sold out like far in advance. Yes, it was very (laughs) sold out. I was very shocked. And the tickets were not cheap, so we were very delighted. Yes, but it sold out three nights. And um, actually what's interesting is, you know, we were like real chefs. So we actually were making the pasta, making the dessert, all that. And I'm not a good cook for you listeners to know. So when I got I heard something about French toast, so I'm just going circle back that later. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> but I'm very good at like a photo op, like I can hold just the spatula. So when uh. they asked me, I was like, oh, this is, this is woof, rough. But um, it was very exciting. But actually the reception we got from the diners, if you will, was we didn't get to interact with the chefs enough. So they actually oh. 
see us more. They actually wanted to hug us and to talk to us more than having us in the back kitchen all the time cooking. So Casey House um, and Fidel Gastros uh, did the event again last... Oh, I'm getting my dates. It's this whole quarantine, you guys, that I'm getting all my dates mixed up. I'm like, where are we? It was only last month that we did the second one. I was going to say last year. It was last month. I um, wasn't here. (sighs) Yes, yes, you weren't. Um, Beginning of March, again, it was three days or three nights. Um, And yeah, and it it was a bigger venue, but we got to around the time of dessert, all the chefs got to go out there and got to really um, maneuver with the diners and talk to them. And it was um, a really great moment. Uh, raised funds for Casey House, uh, the hospital. So that's always great. And the event that we did in 2017 was also filmed by Hubert Davis, who's an Academy Award nominated mm-hmm. director. And he did a short film called Junes. And I believe if you search that on YouTube, Junes, um, Junes Eatery, Junes Casey mm-hmm. House, you can find the- I'm episode. trying to find where, how I can watch it because I saw the link, but I haven't found the actual videos. I, I'll do some digging oh, around there. And, yes, and I'll send, I'll send it share. to you because it is now, yeah, for a while, I think, because HBO had bought it, wow. we could, they couldn't share it um, for, I, bet, I think, about two years or something like that. So now it is publicly on YouTube. Oh, so we can put Every, that for the listeners. Yes. We can have a link yes. to that. And so how did it feel for for everybody you know, when you you read, oh, people don't want people living with HIV to cook for them, and then it's sold out. How was that? What was that feeling like for everybody who was the chefs? When so first, when I found out that survey came out, I was like, well, I kind of knew there are people out there like that, so I wasn't like completely shocked. But on the other hand, I was like, how? ignorant is that Mm. to say that because you don't ask the guy at McDonald's that's putting the chicken in your burger if he has HIV like you don't (laughs) you don't know if if your chef in the kitchen of the restaurant you go to has HIV so I don't know why this is I mean I I I don't even know how you could say that um Mm -hmm. but it was very profounding to see people sell that event out, um, to see people supporting it, very warm-hearted. Um, but definitely still that realization that the people that were in that room that paid their money for those tickets are most likely already allies or already are you know, in support of the movement, um, maybe aren't stigmatizing people as much. So it definitely was a realization for um, many of us that there's still work to be done. And I think that that's why the documentary was a nice extension because it's this mm-hmm. video you can watch for free um, that you can say, like, look at this event and look at the human aspect behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just that you just keep giving me these nice segues into the next question, which is, you said you, you all noticed, okay, there's still work to be done. And so my question, the final question on stigma I have is how can we fix this? How can the listeners be part of, of solving stigma? I think so. 
I was talking to a friend and uh, just to make the long story short, she was worried about going to an event with a certain guy who always says sexist things around her. And she was going with her boyfriend and going with a bunch of other friends. And I asked what, all the women that hear this guy saying this are obviously offended and you all stick up for yourselves. But what are the men doing in that area? Mm. Like what is your boyfriend who's right next to you saying? Because sometimes, and I don't want to like say, Oh guys only listen to guys, but where is that allyship? Like where's that, that, that support. So I think as a person living with HIV and I'm an activist, but one thing about me is like, I don't want to educate the guy I'm going on a date with. Mm-hmm. First of all, we're both adults. I want you to know your information as well. And I'm not really going to be attracted to you after I feel like I just gave you a, a 12th grade sex education. Mm-hmm. So that's just like, it takes away from that. That I would hope that allyship, whether you are affected by HIV or not, would be important. If you see something support the person or say something because Mm -hmm. the person living with HIV cannot always be strong to be like, no, 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 that's not it. Just for the listeners Mm -hmm. to know, I am a black female, uh, Mm -hmm. a very cute black female. Very beautiful. (laughs) But I am a black female that sometimes, you know, if I pop off on a guy who stigmatizes me when I'm out for, when I'm out at a bar with my friends and if I'm the only person popping off on him, I'm the angry black woman. I should get kicked out of the bar. I'm the one freaking out. I'm the one that can't lose it. So it's, it makes sense for us to, to rock in teams and, and whether mm-hmm. this is a monumental moment or not, you are a part of history. And I will never forget the amount of friends or even just acquaintances or random strangers that supported me in those times when I thought that I was just going to have to defend myself. I think that's so, so powerful of a lesson for everybody is that it can't just be people who are experiencing the stigma that, that can fight against it. First of all, as you just said, you experience more than one kind of stigma. So you also have to deal with racism and sexism and HIV stigma. So why don't we all see it as our job, you know, to to be allies and to stand up for whoever it is getting stigmatized rather than the burden being on the people who are already experiencing stigma? Absolutely. That's so important. It's um, pay attention to those things and pay attention to those little microaggressions and how this person may feel about it and um, why that other person is stigmatizing them. Um, I think that it's not always if somebody was to disrespect me to stigmatize me, it's not always my job to educate them because if I mean, if I'm hurt, then I'm hurt. So you be that educator, you be that that ally. And I think that that's something really important for people to know, I think, um, that people living with HIV are not some complainers. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, when there's rallies or petitions, um, read your information. The information is free on the internet. Totally read your information to Mm -hmm. know the facts, but support those um, policies that do give the rights to uh, people living with HIV in marginalized communities. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought that up is that the burden of education should be on us educating ourselves. It should not be people who are being marginalized and stigmatized to educate you. So folks, there's so much reputable information on the World Health Organization website, Public Health Agency of Canada, UNAIDS website. So there's a lot of ways that we can get accurate information. 
about HIV and not have to ask people to educate us. We can, we can take that initiative and educate ourselves. So thank you. You're you're so Mm. great. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I don't know if there's anything you want to say more about stigma before we go to the wild card fun questions where people get to know the other side of Maluba. Oh, that's fun. I I think just about stigma is um, just because we talked and I talked a lot to the other side that maybe is watching stigma go down or stigmatizing other people. But I do want to say to the people that are being stigmatized um, for HIV status or anything more, um, just remember that one person doesn't speak for the status quo. um, And just remember it isn't your job to accept the stigma that they're putting you through. I think, I mean, just like any other young 20-something-year-old girl, I think you're, you always have, like, one bad relationship or something like that. Um, so I did have, you know, this situationship, if you will. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a good word. <laughs> you're such a journalist. I love that situation. Yes, yes, situationship. <laughs> but, and it was more like, Everything he did wrong, it would be like, well, that's okay because he's still with me because, and I'm living with mm-hmm. HIV. So it was like this different, this guilt that he would use on me that who else is going to find you or love you for that? Mm. And then this guilt that I also told myself, like, this is the only person I'm going to find. The, there's still good times. And so I, I really want us to be careful with that because stigma comes in many forms. And one of them is internal stigma. And there was a time when I wasn't taking my HIV medications because I just didn't realize or think that my life was worth much and maybe thought that I deserved the stigma, which is really crazy. But I want people to be able to dissect that as well and Mm -hmm. and, uh, make sure that, yeah, you're not, don't, don't put so much on you as well. It's the other person's problem and it's, it's definitely not you. And, and I don't think it's crazy at all if if people are not educated and are stigmatizing. A natural a consequence is that people who are stigmatized might start also not valuing or seeing their own worth and their own um, dignity and their own value. So I think that the the way that stigma doesn't just sit on outside of people, but it gets inside of people. I think that's a really important point that you made. And that we shouldn't blame people for internalizing that stigma as a natural consequence. So thank you, Maluba. You're so brilliant. So I have some wild card questions for you. What is your favorite emoji? Oh, (laughs) oh my gosh. I don't even know how to describe it. It's one of the new ones, you know, the one with the wiggled face and they're kind of, it's kind of blushing. And I mean, I feel like I, I'm going to text it to you right now. Is it the one where the, the face is tilted sideways and there's like one eye open and closed, the tongue sticking out? That one? No, no, not the tongue sticking out. That one, uh-uh, that is too challenging. <laughs> I'm like judging. It is the, do I have your number? Yes, I do. Uh, but we'll have to, I'll, you know, when I write this episode up, I will include that for the listeners on, on the write-up. Yes. It's like, okay, I'm looking at it right now. It's like one eye is closed. The mouth is halfway open. He's blushing. The eyebrows up. Like he just looks like sick and just, not sick, but it's like, <laughs> I'm an overthinker. So I feel like when I think of something that awkward that happened, like. Oh, I know that one. He's, yes. like, a th- he's like the thinker. 
Yes. yes. Yeah. He's like the thinker. And he's like, I think that's the one that I've been using um, mostly these days just because we're in quarantine. So I wake up at different times in the day and I'm just like, where, where am I? What day is it? All that. And I'm just like, yeah, flustered. Um, yeah. So that's my favorite. And then the, the little kissing one without the heart with the blushing cheeks. Oh, that's, I, I love emojis, so we're going to have to start texting because yes, I yeah. have a good emoji game. I get animals yes. in there and, you know, planets. And oh, yes. Yeah. All of, all of those um, dancing people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my second wildcard question is, are you into any Netflix series or good movies lately? Yes, I am. I mean, that's all I feel like I'm doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love, I'm trying to think of a Netflix. Oh my God. People do not judge me. Um, we just talked. <laughs> this is not you don't judge me this time. It's <laughs> inspiration love, here. There's a series, The Boss Baby. It's not the movie, the TV show. It is so good. I'm a grown woman watching the show alone. <laughs> It is so, so good. It's like a really funny, cute cartoon. I love Bob's Burgers, that cartoon. Um, And then uh, some real adult shows. Um, I like, it's not like a binge watching, but I like The Good Fight. It's really, really good. I haven't seen that. Oh, you have to check it out. They just started season four. It's very, it's amazing. I like Insecure. I haven't seen that. Oh, you have to watch that too, girl. We have a lot. Okay. What else? Oh, and I like the show that's MTV The Challenge, which is like an athletic, like one of those Survivor Big Brother shows. I always try to, yeah, watch. So maybe I also ask this question to get some ideas for my own Netflix. Yes. I've been into uh, Sex Education, that one. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh my God. How could I forget that? I watched, I wish I, I, I left it out and watched it during quarantine, but I watched it at the beginning of this year, both seasons. Iconic. Um, I love Eric. He's my, he's, he's my, I mean, I'm, I'm actually a combination of Eric and Otis because I have that awkwardness of Otis, but I'm also funny like Eric. Yeah. Um, so yeah, funny. I and stylish it. too. Like, yes. Oh, thank that. you. Yeah. And then for movies, I, I, I'm really into horror movies. Oh, um, my goodness. Not me. What, what, what's oh, your latest? I cannot watch a horror movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love horror movies. And I don't know why I'm – and maybe that's also part of why I'm not sleeping. I'm watching horror movies alone <laughs> with the lights off but and, like, imagining Michael Myers in my place. But I love all the, like, all the Halloweens, um, especially the 1988 wow. one and the 2018 one. I love The Invisible Man that just came out this year. Very, very good. I love, ooh, I love Insidious. I don't even know. I can't even watch the trailers. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And It, Carmen, you have to watch It. Absolutely not. I don't think I I could not make it through that. I saw the trailer and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have nightmares about the trailer. (laughs) 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 So yeah, you have to do some sort of uh, study to see. Does the days you watch horror movies impact yeah. your sleep? Tell me. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's not my <laughs> but I'm very prepared if the killer comes. I've already like have a hammer under my bed. Oh my goodness. Like just in case, but yeah. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Okay. I have one last question. You have to sing a karaoke song. What song do you sing? Oh my goodness. <laughs> any song yeah I mean when I was a kid I used to sing a lot of 
Mariah Carey. Oh, fantasy nice. and always be my my baby. But my sister told me singing was not my forte. <laughs> so I, I stopped that. Which now I'm gonna yell at her about that. But um, so if it was a throwback, Mariah Carey. I also love um, Lean on Me. Oh, and, I love that. Yeah, song. Lean on Me. And then oh, something by the Spice Girls. Oh, yeah, wanna be. We need to have a karaoke night. That that would be great. Yes, yeah, we do have to. <laughs> yes, I'm into it. <laughs> so when people want to thank you so much, Maluba, and you've been such a fantastic guest, um, when people want to find find you, is do you have a website? Yes, I yeah. Just, oh, tell us what your website is. And yes, well, you can find me at the Union Station in Toronto. I'm always on the train. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, yeah, no. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at It's Maluba, I-T-S-M-U-L-U-B-A. And my website is maluba.ca, M-U-L-U-B-A dot C-A. Um, and yeah, and you can I have a YouTube channel and all that stuff, but I'm mostly on Twitter, Instagram, and my site. And you'll be starting your own podcast soon. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I kind of told Carmen that privately, but I, I like that you've kind of held me accountable. Oh. Leave it in. So I'm Sorry, like, I always try to promote it. Oh yes. Yeah. That's why I'm like, no, leave it in because now and now it's like a coming soon type of thing. And I know I've, I've, I've already promised it now, but yes, I'm coming with a new uh, podcast and you will have to be one of my guests, of course, so I can turn it around and ask you all the questions. Oh, I'd be honored. Um, yes. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to start that up and um, I'm excited to, yeah, continue this activism and hope that this has given people a fresh perspective. Thank you again, Thank listeners. You. Maluba, one of the most fantastic writers, activists, thinkers, and really a global leader in reducing stigma around HIV and other identities. So once again, uh, there'll be a write-up about Maluba with links to her website and her work. So thank you so much, Maluba. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. This is really great. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you? If you want to listen, what I have to tell you? If you want to listen...